Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by my co-host, former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And if you're like me and most of the internet, you spent the last week goggling at the very first and absolutely stunning images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Normally on this show, we focus on public policy, government, and politics. So we thought about looking for an excuse for focusing on the James Webb and the broader universe today, like the fact that the reveal of the first images came live from the President of the United States. But we decided we don't need that because these images lead us right into the most profound questions about the cosmos and our own existence that humankind can pose. And if thinking about these questions for a few minutes isn't worthwhile for its own sake, I don't know what is. But also, they do help put some of our fights, disagreements, and problems here on this pale blue dot into some proper perspective. And I think we could all use that. To do that, we have an absolutely incredible guest. I'm totally beside myself here. Dr. John Mather is the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. In 2006, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite, which helped cement the Big Bang Theory of the Universe. According to the Nobel Prize Committee, the COBE project can also be regarded as the starting point for cosmology as a precision science. So that is something that I don't have on my resume. In 2007, Dr. Mather was listed among Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. He also attended the top undergraduate college in America, Swarthmore College, where, of course, he achieved highest honors in physics. Dr. Mather, what an honor it is to have you on Beyond Politics. I'm delighted to be here with you, and let's talk. Let's talk. There's, this is, wow, I, 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 don't, I don't even know where to start. Well, uh, look, what we've seen, just what the public has seen already in the past week or so, is the culmination of decades of work that you've helped to lead. I wanna ask you, was there a moment of maybe nervousness during the development mm -hmm. of the launch or the deployment over the last few months where you thought to yourself, maybe this isn't all gonna work out? And in contrast, what has it felt like as you've begun to get these images and data and seen that it is working and so spectacular? Well, my goodness, to tell the truth, I was not worried. I was very calm and quiet, and, and I watched the launch from the living room, uh, as so many people did, because we had COVID and we had to cancel our in-person launch party. So I was just there. Of course, we did a good job, and no worries here. And, and I watched very carefully as our team unfolded the telescope by commands from the ground, and nothing went wrong. It was wonderful to see. And just in the last week, now that we finally announced all the great data are here, I had the feeling, well, you know, it was like watching, walking along the edge of a cliff and you're not looking down. You're just putting one foot in front of the other. And then you get to the end, oh, what a relief. I didn't know how scary, I, I, how scary it really was. So that's how it is. It certainly reminds me what, what you've just told us about being in the big rooms reminds me of, of all the incredible motion pictures we've had over the years of what it's like to be in the NASA big room watching, watching this. I mean, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm an addict of reruns of Apollo 13. And so I'm imagining you as played by, I don't know, some, some James Cromwell. I'm getting yeah, a James sure. Cromwell vibe. 
there you go standing in the big room watching this incredible launch but but now that we've that we're seeing these images it is just it's it's stunning and i'm tempted to use one of them super the 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 first image that came through was superimposed by somebody on van gogh's starry night and i'm seeing that yeah so it's really kind of that's pretty spectacular but in the history of the development of the james webb space telescope there have been many complications and setbacks with both the timeline, the cost going outward and upward. There was an initial $1.5 billion cost estimate. It seemed to end up more than $10 billion, and 2007 became 2022. And now, obviously, NASA has had to come back to Congress for more funding and more time. And I used to hear and vote on a lot of funding pitches from agencies like that. I, I actually, by the way, as a U.S. congressman, I did vote for more funding for the James Webb Once Upon a Time. So for our listeners out there who, be, who may be more familiar with government and politics than physics and cosmology, why is this scientific tool so worth it? What, would, what, what does the pitch to Congress what was the pitch to Congress? What did it sound like over the years? How, with all the problems we face on this little blue planet out here in our, some part of a spiral arm of some, some insignificant galaxy, here we are. Why should we spend billions of dollars on something like this when, when we've got roads and bridges to fix and, and wars to fight? Why? Well, golly gee, number one, I think because we want to. That's just a sort of remarkable thing about humanity. We want to explore. Uh, we want to know our story. We want to know where did we come from? What's the history of the universe? It's just intrinsic to us that we want to know things. We are explorers. We've been looking around, trying out new places to go ever since humans turned up. So that was a long time ago. And you think back in history, well, it wasn't so long ago that all humans had was rocks and sticks. And, and we wanted to know what happened after that. So now we can also answer the, ask the question at least, well, what came before that? Where did the planet Earth come from? Where did the galaxies come from? And then almost a century ago, we discovered that indeed the universe is expanding. And then we eventually called this the Big Bang Theory. So what happened after that? So we've been working on this question for centuries. And now we have a chance to open it up with actual observations and look farther out in time, farther back in time than we ever could before, and make some sense of this beautiful chaos that is the universe. And, and how is it possible that it made people possible? So I'm fascinated with that. Coming back to the question of, well, we have a lot of other problems here on Earth. Of course we do. But I remember often uh, President Kennedy, when he said when he, we were going to the moon, uh, that we were going to do that and the other things too. And not, we're doing this not because it is easy, but, but because it is hard. And so I'm with that. We have demonstrated in doing these giant NASA projects that when we decide to come together and work together, we can accomplish the most incredibly complex and difficult projects. So if we want to know, can we solve those other problems? Well, I think we've demonstrated that we could. We haven't yet, but we could. That's my interpretation of our success. And by the way, thank you for voting for the telescope because without public support, it never would have happened. So Dr. Mather, I just wanted to follow up for our listeners who might not know kind of the 
physical aspects of the James Webb telescope and how incredible it is to have it out there. We're all familiar with capsules on top, on top of rockets, and we now know about astronauts circling, circling the Earth and all that. But, but what physically is the James Webb telescope? Where is it? How did it get to where it is? What does it look like out there? And, and how does it work? Oh my goodness, that's a lot to tell. Where it is, it's a million miles away from Earth, and it's overhead at midnight. So it's a, orbiting a place called the Lagrange Point 2. And we put it out there because when you're out there, you can put up a umbrella, a one-sided sunshade that'll keep the telescope protected from the sun, the earth, and the moon. So it, that we do that so the telescope can get cold. Uh, well, why do we want the telescope to be cold? Because we want to pick up infrared light. And if the telescope is warm, it emits its own infrared light. So, okay, so cold and, and far away. Uh, so... Then the astronomer said, well, we want to do something we've never done before. We need a bigger telescope than what we have with the Hubble. So, okay, well, that's going to be bigger than the rocket. So that means unfold this telescope after launch. And so how are you going to do that? Well, make the mirror, the big mirror, out of 18 smaller hexagons and, and focus them after launch so that they behave as one. So we have this amazing hexagonal mirror made out 18 smaller hexagons. Oh, and by the way, we need to pick up infrared light. So it is plated with gold because gold is the best reflector for infrared light. So it is gorgeous to look at. And, and so it's way out there. It was folded up for launch, sort of like a, a butterfly in its little chrysalis. And it came out after launch by a series of commands sent up from the ground because it's a robot observatory. It has many things it can do. It's got motors and cables and pulleys and wheels and things to make it do the thing it needs to do when it unfolds in space. So now it's way out there and it doesn't look like other people's telescopes because it is not surrounded by a tube. So why is that? Again, it's so that we can make it cold. So it radiates its own heat out into outer space. That lets it get cold. So it's very different from anything else you've ever seen. And it's just gorgeous. Well, you were mentioning a moment ago that what kind of drives this effort is wanting to answer the most profound questions about where we come from and the origin of the universe and, of course, ourselves within it. And you won your Nobel Prize for establishing our understanding, for actually developing the, the science and it, that, that allowed us to see and hear the after echo of the Big Bang in the universe around us. Now, the James Webb can't see, my understanding, I don't need to tell you, the James Webb can't quite see all the way back to the Big Bang, but it will be able to see farther than any other instrument we've ever had. What are you hoping to learn specifically about the Big Bang and the, those very early origins of the universe by using the James Webb? Well, there's this huge mystery. We have a picture of the universe and when it was very young. We got it with the COBE satellite, and then we got two more, even better ones, with more satellites, the WMAP satellite and the European Planck satellite. They took better pictures. And by the way, they said you got it right the first time, which was nice. And so that's the map of the universe as it was when it was very young, 400,000 years old, which is a tiny, tiny fraction of the history. And then what happened then? Where did the galaxies come from? Where did the first stars come from? How did that happen? 
So we've got a story now that we tell that uh, gravity was able to act on the expanding universe and pull back the material in some of the areas that were more dense than average. So apparently that happened because here we are, but what are the details? So there's a lot of funny business going on out there in the sense that there are mysteries. There's something astronomers can detect the presence of called dark matter, which is much more abundant than ordinary matter, and it's really transparent. And there's also a dark energy, which also also transparent, but affects the rate of expansion of the universe. And then there's this gigantic question of we don't understand how the big black holes happened. Every galaxy, even the Milky Way, our own galaxy, has a gigantic black hole. We call it supermassive, with millions or billions of times the mass of the sun all compressed into a black hole. Okay, well, how did that happen? And what did it do to us? So it, we don't understand how that could have happened. Uh, we see that it did, but we don't know how. And so what did it do to us? Well, when the Milky Way was young, it was that black hole was pulling stuff in and it was falling in and getting very hot and uh, disturbing the neighborhood. So the solar system, if it had been born there, we would be in trouble because it would have been sterilized by the radiation coming from that black hole. So we escaped that. We didn't form till later. The solar system is only one third as old as the universe. So Anyway, and we're also very far from that black hole. So anyway, it all affects all of the galaxies that everyone has a big black hole in the middle and there must have been something pretty important happening in the, big in the early times. So we've never seen it actually happen. So our hope with this new telescope is we'll be able to see far enough back in time, far enough away in space that we can actually see those first things growing. So we designed it with that in mind, and we're certainly hopeful that we will do so. And we already saw from the first pictures that it is indeed the right tool for the job. Uh, now, what did nature tell us? That's still open to be discovered. So speaking of looking back to the edge of town, I wanted to ask about the very first picture from the James Webb Space Telescope that NASA and President Joe Biden released last week. It's showing a portion of the night sky called SMAX 0723, which apparently to our eyes would take up about as much of the sky as a grain of sand held out at the length of our arm. But within that, that grain of sand held out the length of our arm, there are thousands of galaxies visible, some more than 13 billion light years away. Some are stretched and visible only because the gravity of nearby objects is acting like a lens on them to bend the light that's coming to us. And it's, of course, become immediately an iconic, it's a, a famous picture. So what I wanted to ask you is what stands out to you from that image? And what should people look for that you find really interesting and important? Oh my goodness. Well, I guess the first thing is it tells me the telescope works the way we said it would. And the second thing is it tells us nature is beautiful and, and we have the ability to study the mysteries that we imagined are there. So the telescope is powerful enough to see those very first objects growing. And we are using nature's lenses, those extra gravitational forces that bend and magnify the even more distant galaxies. And some of them are very highly magnified. So we knew they would do that. Of course, we knew that that's one of the reasons they chose that target to look at. <clears throat> so there is so much to be discovered about this very, very, very early universe. And it was easy. We just pointed the telescope over there. There were lots of things to choose. And we said, well, okay, we have this, this, and this. Those are the most interesting. And we got them, and there they are. 
And it only took us a few hours to do this. So it would have something that Hubble could never have done. Wow. Matt, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, I, but I just, what's, what's incredible to, to me and, and, and my brain simply, I am not a physicist and I never even played one on TV, but what's so incredible to me is when what we're looking at in that grain of sand picture are not, it's not like we're looking at planets. We're looking at thousands of galaxies with billions, maybe trillions of stars and planets. It, it cre it, if you really contemplate that from that one grain of sand, and it's very hard, at least for me, to fathom what that means for the matter in terms of galaxies in the entire universe. And then when you talked about dark matter before, as the majority of the matter in the universe, all the matter that we can see, those trillions upon trillions upon trillions of galaxies, make up something like 4% of the matter in the universe. How, how, how can we as humans how? make sense Just of how? how? Well, and also, also all of that, I mean, Dr. Mather, this is, this, is your, this, this is your thing. All of that that Paul just described was compressed into a singularity at, at the moment of the Big Bang and then, and then exploded. I mean, how? How? Okay, well, how is a hard question, but actually uh, people do misunderstand what it means to say a singularity, because mm. a point has zero dimensions and the universe has three space and one time dimension, so it's not really exactly the same. So people often say the universe was compressed into a point. Well, no, it wasn't. It was very compressed. And so that's what we mean when we say a singularity, it was very, very compressed without limit to how compressed it was, but that's different from compressed into a point. It was never a point. So this is something that the popular press has misrepresented and so have scientists. So it's confused the heck out of people because it was just a wrong picture. <clears throat> so the universe is expanding and has always been expanding far as we can tell. Um, and, it and it started off when it was very young, it was very hot and dense. And uh, it's been cooling and then turning into galaxies and stars after that. So it's, it's been hard for people to understand it because we told you the wrong story. That actually makes a little bit of sense to me. And the fact that I think it makes sense to me, I find very suspicious because that means I probably don't deeply understand it. <laughs> what you mean, how can you, how can you have a dimension of, of space if you're at a singularity and it's essentially infinitely compressed. I'm gonna stop there before I get myself into trouble. The announcement from last week that I personally found the most exciting wasn't really a picture, it was data. It, the, the James Webb was able to capture the breakdown of light filtered through the atmosphere of a planet circling another star, WASP-96b, which is apparently a Jupiter-like planet that's 1,150 light years from Earth. I can't believe I just said that last sentence because I remember still when scientists were still announcing that they had found planets around other stars, exoplanets, and now we found more than 5,100 of them. And now, now, now we have the James Webb, which may be able to tell us a lot more about which ones hold at least the ingredients for life if not life itself. Can you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of the James Webb's work and what we may be able to determine in the coming years? 
Yes, sure. We are certainly thrilled that we could get that image, sort of image, a data, as you call it. <clears throat> we showed that, that the spectrum of this planet has signs of water. Well, we sort of knew that already because we'd already tried it with the Hubble telescope on that target. So we knew that was a good place to look. And we, but we wanted to see what does it look like at the longer wavelengths. So let me back up and say, well, how do you know? Uh, so this, uh, this planet is one which goes in front of its star. Every orbit that it goes around, it passes in front of the star. So, okay, so we knew that because some of the starlight is blocked. Okay, the star gets a little fainter for a little while. Okay, something happened. Well, what's next? Well, in this case, try to see if any starlight goes through the atmosphere of this planet on its way to the telescope and see what is, which part is that. And so it turns out if there are molecules in that atmosphere, then they absorb the light. <clears throat> and it looks like the planet's just a little bigger at those particular wavelengths where the planet, where the molecules absorb. So, okay, so now we can tell the difference between the starlight and the, and the light that came through the planet's atmosphere and spread it and spread it out into a spectrum. Spectrum is just the rainbow, except our wave wavelengths are invisible to, not, to people. We can't see them. So we need the equipment. Anyway, we spread it out into the spectrum see what molecules are there. And we got water this time, and there are probably some other ones too. But this planet's a little hot, as you said. This is not really water like water, this is steam. So what we are aiming to do soon is try this technique out on much smaller planets that are a lot closer to us. And the ones where we have the best chance of telling are orbiting very small stars, and we know which ones are at about the right place to be sort of like Earth. And so they're on the schedule. We have about five dozen little planets orbiting small stars on the schedule. And so we'll try the same method and see what happens. So number one question, do they have an atmosphere at all? The little rocky planets like Earth might not. Well, that would be disappointing if you think that's required for, for life. So then maybe that we won't be able to tell much about life on a planet if it doesn't have an atmosphere. But maybe they do have. Maybe they have water. We should be able to see water even on a small Earth-like planet. Then more advanced questions. Well, what about oxygen? We don't think we can pick it up on those planets because the telescope wasn't designed for that. Um, although everybody wants to know because oxygen is a sign here on Earth of photosynthesis. Oxygen is very reactive. It would all go away in a pretty short time <clears throat> if the plants weren't making it again. So we want to find places which sort of look like Earth because they would have the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere. Okay, well, that's fun. It would be nice to say there's a planet that has life or at least could have life. So we're looking for that. We need another even better telescope to really answer that question because this is just too hard. Web, Web was not designed for that. So just to read that back for a second, because I do think you're right. From a public standpoint, the question we're most interested in, the one we can access the most, is like, well, is there, is there life? And what you're saying is, look, we could show that there's a planet in the so-called habitable zone that's not too hot, not rotating too fast, that, that would seem to have conditions that, as far as we can conceive of it, would support life, and that also had a significant amount of free oxygen in the atmosphere, that would be not quite a smoking gun, but pretty strong evidence of some kind of a biological process akin to what we're familiar with, strong hint that there's life there. The problem is James Webb isn't going to, you don't, you don't think, be able to do that specific thing. Yeah, I don't think so. In fact, the National Academy of Sciences had a committee that wrote a report a, a year ago, and they said, please, if you can, for the next big telescope, please look for that. 
need a better telescope, and we know more or less what it has to be, but it'll take us a while. Probably I, like like the web, a couple of decades. Hmm. I, I, it, the the discussion we've just had about the potential for finding something that that we might recognize as life out there brings to mind for me, since I'm a movie buff, the Jodie Foster in the movie Contact. And now this isn't directly related to the James Webb, but coincidentally, at about the time these incredible images have come, we also heard about hearing some radio waves from space. And in the movie Contact, the folks are sitting at their ancient computer green screens looking at signs and and then they down, get this incredible downloaded machine instruction they build the machine and then Jodie Foster has to convince people after she makes contact that it's real because nobody can really believe her because nothing happened so back to the radio waves and 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 in in describing yeah. the radio waves we heard there was a heartbeat in space going boom 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 and it was happening at periodic intervals which was is unusual. Could you tell us what's going on with the heartbeat in space? What are we hearing? Well, I didn't actually track that news, but I saw the headline. But there's several possibilities. Nature has made, made things that do go boom, boom, boom in space. And some of them are called pulsars. Uh, and a Nobel Prize was given for discovering them. They're a little uh, neutron star, very you know, about 10 miles across, about as big as a city, with a very intense magnetic field. And they send out radio waves that go boom, boom, boom. Some of them go very fast. Some of them rotate 300 times a second. That's pretty dang fast. They're called millisecond pulsars. So yeah. nature is full of surprises that are not messages from intelligent beings. So, so I guess what we're saying, and spoiler alert for people who haven't seen the movie Contact, you're saying it's not Jodie Foster's father, likely. Probably not, but... Prob but. Probably not. So let me add, we've been focusing so far on your your major focus of study, which is the early universe, the, the beginning of, but the other extreme in the life cycle of some of the objects in the universe, in the life cycle of stars particularly, one of the images that's grabbed attention over the last week is, is a really sharp and beautiful picture of the Southern Ring Nebula, which is apparently showing two dying stars in orbit around each other, and they're shedding gas and dust forming nebula. And so in addition to being a stunning picture, apparently the, the James Webb has the capability to give us a lot of data about what's going on in this, in this shedding process. Why is that significant? And what are scientists hoping to learn? Oh my goodness. Well, number one, this is important to our history. Stars like that produce the chemical elements that you see around you in the house. The Big Bang gave us hydrogen and helium and not much else. So where did the calcium and oxygen and all that from stars? So how did they get here? Stars either exploded or just sent out these little puffs of material to get recycled. So the first generation of stars produced these, then they kept on making more. So here the universe is full of, of all the chemical elements. So we are here because of stars like that. Okay, thank you. So of course, then there's a process after that, after the star sends out all this stuff into space, it will get recycled. It'll get mixed with the other material that's already there. Gravity will pull it back in again to make the next generation of stars. So the solar system is only one third the age of the universe. So 
it had many, many generations of previous stars that came and went and produced the chemical elements in the house here. Wow. So when Crosby, Stills, and Nash wrote, We Are Stardust, or actually it was Joni Mitchell, I think, wrote, We Are Stardust, literally it's true. Absolutely true, yeah. They were cribbing from Carl Sagan, though, right? That was I, I, right. I, I understand. Well, Dr. Mather, I, we're we're dubbing you the new Carl Sagan. Your your explanations are so are so right on and 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 understandable that I, I think this podcast is going to make you the the next Carl Sagan. In addition to your Nobel Prize, you will be able to add that to your lustrous resume. But I want to now take us back to the beginning of of star formation because. We another image that has gotten enormous attention is the Carina Nebula. And as much as we always think of space as vast and empty, here is an image of this huge, rich, dynamic environment where the larger structures of the universe, like stars that we are able to see in the night sky, are actually being formed right right before our eyes. Talk to us about that image and what, what stands out to you about this and, and what are we learning from, from, from seeing that, that clarity and, and beauty? Mm, well, there's an awful lot in that picture. You need a tour guide just to see what's there because there's so many different things in there. What you see first is sort of the bottom half of the picture is sort of brownish red and right. the top half is blue. Right. And so the top half is blue because there are really bright new stars that are bluish and they are radiating their starlight and they're shining down on the red thing and burning it up, evaporating it. Uh, so you see this blue stuff like steam coming up off the, the dark cloud. So that's part of the process of what happens. Then inside the cloud, we're enabled to see now hundreds of new stars being born right now. So the infrared capability of the web lets you see inside dust clouds. You know, when you go down to the airport and they look through your clothes to see if you're carrying something bad, they're using longer wavelengths. And so we use longer wavelengths also to see around the dust grains and inside. So now we can see how our stars like the sun being born. So this is a first good shot at understanding this. We know where it's happening, but we really can't see with the Hubble because they're all happening inside dark clouds. They're just completely opaque. So it's our chance to understand how did the star, how did the sun get formed and how come does it have planets? So the whole idea that all planets, all stars have planets is new actually in the last couple of decades. And now we have to have a story that explains how not only is the star born, but how does it always have planets? So this is our chance to learn about this. Wow. I, I want to this is a very terrestrial bound lead into a question, but in the run up to recording this show with you, we actually asked people who are interested in, in space and cosmology to submit questions through social media. Uh, and by the way, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at Matt L. Robeson on Twitter, and this show is on Facebook, and we're Beyond Politics with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on Facebook. So follow along. We got a question from another Swarthmore College alum, Jonathan Evans. And I also want to give some credit to another questioner, Joanna Kubler, who asked a very similar question. They asked, what's your greatest hope of something new that we might discover with the James Webb Space Telescope? 
Mm. Well, I think there are two places where I know we just don't know. The first one is in the very early universe. What happened after the Big Bang? What's it? What's in the what we call the cosmic dark ages? What's the time between the the galaxies that we know about and the, what was before that? So I think there could be something out there. My guess is some new surprise about the big black holes or some class of, class of object that we never even imagined, and it turns up in the pictures and then disappeared or became unrecognizable, so we don't know about them now. There's other possibilities. We have a big surprise about the planets, because all the planets we know about were surprises. We really didn't expect to find them. We didn't expect that every star would have them, and anyway, Nobel Prize was given for discovering the first two that were orbiting another star, and everybody was making fun of them for even trying to look. So there are so many possible surprises in, in, in the study of planets. So you, I don't know what they're going to be, but I'm very interested in the topic, and it's even got my attention for what are my ideas about the next thing to do. So or, uh, I've been working on a thing called an orbiting star shade. An orbiting star shade would cast a shadow of a star onto a telescope on the ground, so you could see the little planets orbiting around it. So that's a possibility. And just last week, we opened up a challenge on, on a GrabCAD, it's called. It's a computer-aided design community. Draw us, draw us a, a design that would solve our problem. So there are prizes available for people that want to do that. If, if so, people want to participate in that, where should they go? Because we might, our listeners so might. It's, it's called GrabCAD, G-R-A-B-C-A-D. Just get an account and uh, look for the challenges. That's oh. awesome. Actually, and I want to ask you one other follow-up here, which is you mentioned a moment ago that there might be some surprises coming. And I'm going to ask you, it now occurs to me a totally illogical question about that because a surprise by definition is something that you're not anticipating. I'm going to ask you to anticipate a surprise. I know it's dumb, whatever. I don't have a Nobel Prize. Are there any surprises that you may be suspecting, you're, you're beginning to get some hints, something that we're thinking about one way, but you're beginning to get an inkling, you know what, maybe, maybe it's not really that way that you think you may be able to preview coming for us. Are you beginning to get any suspicions that some of our conceptions are wrong and we're going we're gonna to learn that through the James Webb? No, I don't really have any good suspicions that I would be ready to act on. If I did, I'd be proposing an observation to please check this out. But you know, there's a lot of arguing in science about, is this right? There's always somebody who says the Big Bang story isn't right. And we've been thinking about this one ever since the Big Bang was recognized and given a name. Sir Fred Hoyle, who gave it the name, thought it was stupid. So... Anyway, he had his own stupid alternative, not to be too polite about it. And then we've got dark matter and dark energy, and who asked for that? We had some evidence of them many decades ago, but there's no obvious prediction of why they should be there. There are people who say, well, it's not really that anyway. It's some failure of Einstein's theory to describe gravity. So there are paths to that. I don't know if we could tell the difference yet, but I have friends that have been pushing for alternate theories of gravity for a while. So we've never been able to show that Einstein was wrong about that. And we've had a whole century to do it. So it's not easy to show Einstein was wrong, but there's a possibility. And there are also things that may come from the minds of theorists about, well, what is the theory of everything? 
Stephen Hawking and other people were trying to say, well, gravity and quantum mechanics have not been merged properly theoretically, and somebody will try and somebody and somebody will say, I have one and it works, only it predicts something you all didn't see yet. So there's a there are possibilities in that direction. Do I have hope that I'll be get see it? I don't know. There are some plenty of weird things. Um, one that got my attention a while back is there's a mathematician who died uh, named Michael Atiyah, brilliant man, uh, and he said, you know, there's a, fun, a, a constant of nature called the Fine Structure Constant. He claims it was a, a geometrical constant, and he calculated its value to eight decimal places and got it right from a geometrical argument. So if he's got anything going on there, we got to find that out. So it's not an astronomy question, but it's one of those wonderful mysteries. And he unfortunately didn't finish the job before he died. So I'm trying to get some people to take it seriously. Something deep fabric of the universe that is just there. Yeah. So we'll find out. People will work on it. And some of these things are hard. Well, this, this is hard. Yeah, I mean, this is rocket science. Yeah, I mean, let's. But is it hard for you? How do you think we feel? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> this is beyond my comprehension. The people that that work on this have knowledge that I can never even touch. You know, I I graduated from college a long time ago, and the kids that are coming through now they know stuff that wasn't even invented when I was a student. And so I'm. We have so much yet to learn just to keep up with the young people. So let me, I, you may be, you may be able to share this. You may not, and there may be something there, there may not be, but are there data or images that we in the public haven't seen or that haven't made the news yet that without breaching any confidence, you find really scientifically interesting things maybe that we'll, we will see and, and, and should be looking for? Well, I haven't seen them yet myself. We started right in as soon as the telescope was ready to observe everything that was in the plan. And some of the observations are supposed to become public as they are taken. So as soon as they're ready, we'll be showing to them, showing you them. I have not seen them yet. Oh, so your so your image of the the two aliens waving from the UFO that that one isn't coming, I guess. No, no I don't think I don't think that is coming. But <laughs> so. Here's, this may be a bit of a curveball one, but is there something you alluded before to, we were talking about the concept of the Big Bang emanating from a singularity. And you said, you know, this is something that the, the, the science media, the media hasn't done a great job of explaining to the public. It's not, not really the way that science journalists talk about it. Is there something that you wish that non-physicists and non-astronomers understood better a concept or a discovery from the last few years that the public hasn't quite caught on to yet and you, you wish you could explain better? Hmm. Well, one thing that gets my attention is the origin of life. When I grew up, people thought it was impossible to explain. And now I think we're getting to where we may not be able to explain it, but at least we have a different argument. It was thought when I was a kid that the random combination of molecules to do this, that, and the other thing was just so unlikely that it required divine intervention. And astronomers and the physicists and biologists don't think so anymore. We don't know how, but we are saying, okay, well, maybe this is something that nature would always do, given a chance. So we do have some evidence, which is here on Earth, as soon as we had an ocean with about 300 million years afterwards, we have fossils that show signs of life. So is that true? Well, that's a pretty hard subject to work on. There's not very many rocks to look at, but at least it was 
relatively quick uh, in a geological sense. So we may not ever be able to duplicate in a laboratory, but the question of our history, the history of life is attached to this history of the universe. And it's right there. And it's always been on my mind. Mm. So I think it has been sort of public opinion that life requires an extraordinary coincidence. And I don't think so. And I think many scientists don't think so. We're just trying to find out how did it work. Right. Well, if we ever have you back, we'll have to go through each piece of the Drake equation and get your views on the relative likelihood of various things happening, because we're learning more about it through the James Webb and this, this likelihood of, of life forming is, is a really fascinating piece. And by the way, not at all what, uh, what I was expecting you to say when I asked the question, which is, which is absolutely delightful. And I think that's the point of science, like what you're doing with the James Webb. It's not all the stuff you're expecting. What's really exciting is all the stuff you're not expecting. And Paul and I, along with all of our listeners and viewers on, viewer, on, on, on video, are going to be right there along with you as all of this fascinating new information comes out. And Dr. John Mather, thank you so much for walking us through this absolutely fascinating time. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you, Paula. It was a fun conversation. 